0: So, and with that, I'm going to um, to welcome Brad Eric, clin- uh, clinical professor of medicine and section chief of uh, hematology oncology, to introduce today's
1: speaker. Sorry. Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome uh, welcome back to Department Grand Rounds. And it's really my pleasure to be able to introduce to you uh, on. Minute five of his employment here at (laughs) Uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Dr. Stephen Leach, um, uh, I hadn't realized when I asked him or suggested that he might uh, uh, take this opportunity to to sort of get to know uh, or make make himself known to the Department of Medicine that this was actually, I had roped him into a task like this on the very first hour of his his, uh, employment here but uh, he graciously uh, agreed. Um, Dr. Leach uh, went to uh, undergraduate at Princeton, uh, graduating magna cum laude, and and then did his medical degree at Emory, uh, followed by uh, lots of clinical training at Yale, and then MD Anderson for his surgical oncology training. And then he went to Hopkins Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt, you told me that, yes. Vanderbilt, uh, 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 and then, uh, let me work backwards. Yesterday, not yesterday, (laughs) uh, prior to coming here, he was at Sloan Kettering, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, where he established uh, a pancreatic uh, cancer uh, research center, and prior to that, he was at the Hopkins, the Johns Hopkins, where he also was uh, heavily involved in pancreatic cancer. Uh, Dr. Leach has been, uh, a major uh, laboratory and clinical researcher in pancreatic cancer for quite a while uh, funded for decades uh, with over a hundred peer reviewed publications and yet another another twenty five book chapters and reviews and another dozen editorials uh, and and so uh, we 're really pleased that, that uh, he 's agreed to come come here and join us in the upper valley um, uh, he 's gotten out of his uh, what do you call those clothes when you go biking? Those biking shorts. <laughs> uh, he's an avid bicyclist and has already participated in the Proudy. Um, and and so uh, help me in welcoming uh, Dr. Leach as the new cancer center director for Norse Cotton. Thanks, Larry.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, well, it really is a. a a wonderful way to start my first day. So thank, thank you, Brad, for the kind in, in, in introduction um, and in, an invitation to speak today. It really is truly an honor uh, to uh, be here as the next director of the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Um, I moved uh, to the Upper Valley uh, about two and a half weeks ago, and I've already been enjoying life in paradise. Uh, such that I had to make a recent trip to San Diego to go to a scientific meeting, and another one to the Jersey Shore to go to the beach, and I didn't want to leave paradise. Um, I've been enjoying uh, uh, until t- today when I when I moved into the to the eighth floor. I've been um, working and enjoying a uh, spacious uh, corner office space on uh, the Dartmouth Green in front of Collis. I've been uh, cycling uh, and fishing some in the Upper Valley. And then a couple days ago, my son Nathan joined me, and we've done some cycling. And yesterday, we, clowned, uh, we climbed Mount Cube, uh, which was listed as an easy hike on the Dartmouth Outdoor <laughs> Club website. Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, and then we, we, uh, we rewarded ourselves when we were done with dinner at a- Ariana. So it was a truly a, a, a beautiful day. So I'm really, really, really happy to be here uh, personally, but I'm even more happy to be here professionally because I really think that the Norris Cotton Cancer Center has a historic opportunity to extend boundaries in both truly transdisciplinary research as well as in truly patient and family-centric multidisciplinary care. And one of the reasons why I was attracted to um, the position here was because I think uh, Norris Cotton, uh, Dartmouth, and Dartmouth-Hitchcock sit in a really unique sweet spot of, of size and scope and uh, are characterized by unique aspects of of quality, of culture, of collegiality, and a real commitment to putting patients and families first. So my vision is to extend these already remarkable qualities and to Uh, extend Norris Cotton as a truly Dartmouth and Dartmouth-Hitchcock wide entity to partner with all of you and other departmental leaders here to really um, use the resources of the Cancer Center to elevate uh, research across the spectrum within the medical center, uh, within the college, within the Dartmouth-Hitchcock health system, and to extend um, uh, the highest quality patient and family um, um, multidisciplinary, patient and family-centric multidisciplinary cancer care. So I really look forward to partnering with all of you uh, in doing that. So uh, I'm going to talk about um, uh, the cancer that I have uh, paid the most attention to in my professional life, um, um, which is pancreatic cancer, one of our most challenging uh, malignancies. And I'm going to talk about uh, three things today. The first is largely uh, targeted to the students and uh, interns and residents, and it's a brief review of pancreatic cancer anatomy, pathology, epidemiology, and treatment. And then um, I'm going to try and convince you that sequence matters in pancreatic. Pancreatic cancer, that by uh, subjecting these tumors to sophisticated molecular profiling, uh, we can learn things and change treatment paradigms and offer uh, new uh, uh, therapeutic options to our pancreatic cancer patients. So we'll talk a bit about our efforts in the genetic sequencing of uh, patients with uh, pancreatic cancer and their tumors, and then how this sequencing has allowed us to map the immune landscape in pancreatic cancer in ways that's provided us new insights insights about how um, to uh, lend the advantages of immunotherapy, to extend the advantages of immunotherapy to our pancreatic cancer patients. So we'll dive right in here. And again, targeted mostly at the trainees, uh, the pancreas kind of sits in what I think of as grand central station of anatomy, uh, nestled behind the stomach and, and, and below the liver. Um, one of its features is uh, the exocrine pancreas uh, drains its secretion into the, uh, the pancreatic duct, which merges with the bile Duct to uh, jointly or adjacently enter the first part of the small intestine and deliver uh, bile and uh, uh, proteolytic and lipolytic enzymes to help us digest our food. And this um, uh, uh, is the reason behind one of the uh, most common presenting features of pancreatic cancer, which is jaundice, as tumors that arise in the head of the pancreas uh, can frequently block off not only the pancreatic duct but also the adjacent bile duct. And, again, this is kind of grand central station in terms of anatomy. These tumors also frequently arise right uh, adjacent and often invading the superior mesenteric and portal veins as well as the superior mesenteric artery. And these are features that render the surgical treatment of this disease uh, very challenging and and complex. So it's an anatomically uh, complicated uh, disease. It's also a histologically and pathologically pathologically complicated disease. You remember from basic histology uh, that the pancreas is made up of two primary compartments, the endocrine pancreas, uh, comprised of the islets of longer hands, and the exocrine pancreas, which includes these uh, pancreatic enzyme-producing acinar cells that empty their secretions into a network of ducts that eventually uh, become confluent and again empty in the intestine. And this is what this looks like a normal pancreas histologically. Uh, These are the eosinophilic uh, exocrine acinar cells, an eyelid of Langerhans, and the scant uh, peripheral ductal epithelium. And when we talk about pancreatic cancer, we're typically referring to what's known as pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, the Far, by far the most common and the most, most lethal variant of pancreatic neoplasia. And here you can see a couple defining features of pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, or sometimes we refer to it as PDAC. And that is this scant neoplastic epithelium that resembles uh, the, the ductal epithelium of the pancreas that's embedded embedded in this dramatically expanded uh, uh, fibro-inflammatory response, the stromal component of pancreatic cancer. And often the malignant epithelial cells in these tumors will comprise as little as 10% of all tumor volume, with the remainder of the tumor uh, being made up of Connective tissue, um, inflammatory cells, um, and uh, uh, this dense uh, 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 inflammatory reaction. And this um, um, invokes challenges in both studying and treating this disease. In terms of studying the disease, it means that all our tumors um are uh, uh have a paucity of neoplastic epithelium compared to the bulk of the tumor which is made up of genetically normal cells that the malignant epithelial cells have co-opted into doing their evil bidding so all of our molecular profiling is subject to um uh dilution of tumor DNA and RNA uh, by these normal uh infiltrating cell types and that presents Uh, challenges on the research front. It also presents challenges on the therapeutic front because this stroma is uh, 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 largely an immunosuppressive tumor microenvironment, so it creates a milieu that inhibits T-cell recognition and response uh, to the associated cancer. It also may be that the stroma itself presents a physical barrier to the, um, in, uh, to the perfusion of the tumor with chemotherapeutic and other agents. Um, there's actually a paucity of, of blood vessels, and some thinking that there's a high hydrostatic pressure in these tumors that impairs the delivery of therapeutic agents. So there's actually clinical trials ongoing that use uh, simple strategies like um, uh, hyaluronidase to dissolve the high content of, of hyaluronic acid that uh, creates some of this interstitial pressure in this tumor. So it's a unique tumor from a histologic point of view. And again, it's pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma uh, that we talk about, uh, uh, when uh, that, that, that we're referring to when we talk about uh, pancreatic cancer most commonly. There are other uh, tumor types with pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors uh, being the second most common tumor. But this is, again, far and away the most common and most, most lethal form of the disease. In terms of precursor lesions, there are multiple pathways to pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. The best characterized is through a sequence of progressively more and more severe lesions known as pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasia, which are graded according to their uh, uh, features of nuclear atypia into panin 1, panin 2, and panin 3, with panin 3 essentially being carcinoma in situ. There's increasing recognition that other uh, precursor lesions can also lead to pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, and the most common of these is known as IPMN. These are cystic lesions of um, the, the the, 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 the pancreas that are increasingly identified on um, routine imaging and often represent incidental findings. They have a much more, uh, 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 late, late, much longer latency before they convert to mal- malignancy. Um, and uh, ne- nevertheless, these take up a lot of attention of the pancreatic surgeons as more and more uh, patients are identified as having these um, Uh, cystic lesions of of the pancreas. In terms of epidemiology, pancreatic cancer has become a major uh, national public health problem. So uh, just uh, last year, uh, pancreatic cancer, uh, although it's only the ninth most common cancer in terms of incidence, it surpassed breast cancer uh, last year to become the third leading cause of cancer death now behind only lung cancer and colorectal cancer. And by the end of this decade, it's slated to pass colorectal cancer to become the second leading cause of cancer death. And this reflects, in part, um, an aging population. It reflects, in part, improvements in therapies for colorectal and breast cancer. Um, But it also represents, in part, Increases in at least some of the risk factors associated with pancreatic cancer, and namely o- obesity, that um, obesity and the associated inflammatory state that is associated with it. Um, markedly increase the risk for pancreatic cancer. Um, Another increasingly recognized risk factor for pancreatic cancer is new-onset diabetes, especially diabetes that occurs in the non-obese relatively late in life. And so people have actually proposed the term type 3 diabetes to call attention uh, to this form of of, uh, glucose intolerance. And um, new-onset diabetics, are increasingly recognized recognize as a patient population in which it might be appropriate to apply a more intensive screening uh, uh, methodologies for th- for this disease. Another. Um, uh, 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 increasingly recognized risk factor for uh, pancreatic cancer is chronic pancreatitis, chronic inflammation of the pancreas, carries perhaps a 16-fold increased risk of the disease. And that's especially true when it occurs in a hereditary uh, setting. And all of these risk factors uh, uh, heavily synergize with tobacco use uh, to markedly increase a patient's risk for uh, pancreatic cancer. In terms of treatment. Um, only about 15% of patients with pancreatic cancer uh, present uh, with resectable disease. And um, when uh, these patients do present, as I mentioned, it's often because tumors in the head of the pancreas obstruct the adjacent bile duct and cause jaundice. So uh, tumors in the tail of the pancreas that don't have access to this means of announcing their presence by blocking off the bile duct are less frequently resectable. So the most common operation done for pancreatic cancer is the so called whipple operation or resection of the head of the pancreas, which, because of a shared blood, su- blood supply, also requires resection of the adjacent duodenum, uh, the bile duct, and the adjacent gallbladder, and then reconstruction in a complicated manner by sewing uh, the stomach, uh, the, bi- the bile duct, and the pancreas uh, back into the intestine. This is um, uh, 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 applicable, again, though, only to about 15% of the patients. When patients do present with resectable disease, they're offered the hope for long-term survival but still have a median survival of only about two years. So this is radically different from uh, other tumor types, including breast cancer, colon cancer, stomach cancer, um, where uh, patients with resectable disease have long-term survival uh, that approaches often 80%, 90%. E- even for patients with resectable pancreatic cancer, um, Uh, It is already systemic at the time of its diagnosis, even if they're not clinically evident uh, metastases. And so even uh, these few patients, fortunate enough to have their diagnosis made early enough to allow surgical resection, again, have a median survival approaching uh, two years. Uh, For the remaining 85%, about 50% uh, present with locally advanced non-metastatic disease, and 50% 50% uh, present with, frankly, metastatic disease, with the most common sites being liver, lungs, and uh, peritoneum. For these patients, chemotherapy is the mainstay. For patients with locally advanced non-metastatic disease, radiation therapy also has a role to play and is defined to extend survival. Uh, But chemotherapy remains the most common modality used in these patients. And when we talk about chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer, we have two Um, um, uh, uh, most widely utilized chemotherapeutic regimens, uh, both of which offer only modest benefit. So that um, the first regimen that was noted to have uh, uh, survival benefit in this disease uh, over the previously used single agent gemcitabine was the combination of NAB a paclitaxel or a braxane plus gemcitabine, which as you can see here, offers a modest survival benefit of about median survival of seven to nine months. And more recently, a multi-drug regimen known as fulfirinox, um, which involves uh, 5-FU, irinotecan, uh, and oxaliplatin, uh, was also defined to have a meaningful survival benefit uh, uh, with a difference of uh, between 7 and 11 months in terms of median uh, survival. What you'll notice here are two things that are different from other tumor types. The first is that these are very modest survival benefits, and that is... Um, that nowhere in these two New England Journal articles were there any molecular biomarkers to identify subpopulations of patients who may uniquely benefit from these regimens. And it's one of the... Um, Big challenges in pancreatic cancer that I hope to convince you today we're finally making dramatic progress in is we're identifying molecular subtypes of the disease, which can now uh, be utilized to guide um, therapy. And so that brings me uh, to the second uh, section of the talk, where I'm going to talk about how we've utilized molecular profiling in the form of genetic sequencing to start to uh, break down uh, this disease into uh, discrete molecular subtypes, each of which might be uh, an, uh, ultimately treated uh, differently. And so, again, for other tumor types, this is already the norm. This is already the standard. There are at least four recognized types of breast cancer all treated Uh, differently. Um, We've got EGFR mutant lung cancer uh, treated with EGFR um, inhibitors. We've got KRAS wild-type colon cancer, again, treated with EGFR inhibitors. We've got BRAF uh, mutant melanoma treated very effectively with BRAF inhibitors. We've got uh, CKIT mutated GI stromal tumors Uh, treated with tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And for pancreatic cancer, we really uh, uh, historically haven't recognized uh, a discrete uh, molecular subtype of any size, but rather have tended to treat all patients' Uh, all comers with the same two chemotherapeutic regimens. And um, I think that's finally starting uh, to change. Um, and it's changed uh, based on genetic profiling. So, again, um, uh, the mutational spectrum of pancreatic cancer is vast. These tumors tend to be pretty, uh, pretty heterogeneous. And we've long known that there are four common uh, genes that are mutated in pancreatic cancer. The big one, of course, being a a KRAS, a proto-oncogene that undergoes activating mutations in 95% of patients with this disease. Unfortunately, KRAS continues to prove very difficult to drug and so hasn't uh, uh, allowed us um, a therapeutic advantage in pancreatic cancer yet. The other three common tumor suppressor genes that are mutated in pancreatic cancer are P53, Uh, SMAD4, and CDKN2A, or P16. So those are kind of the big four mutations in pancreatic cancer that we've been aware of uh, for almost two decades now, but they haven't provided us with therapeutic access. So um, when I was at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we committed to uh, molecular profiling of every single patient with pancreatic cancer uh, that walked in the door. And so we've now done genetic sequencing on a thousand patients with pancreatic cancer, of whom uh, more than 800 now have classical pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. And we've profiled these patients with an in-house um, platform developed at Sloan Kettering known as MSK Impact, um, which is a targeted a panel of 410 cancer genes, and the MSK-IMPACT panel uh, tar- uh, sequences all exons of these 410 genes, as well as selected flanking uh, in- introns. And it stands for Integrated Molecular Profiling of Actionable um, uh, uh, mutations in cancer. And, um, and so we've now again done this in uh, over 1,000 patients. And this is what we've found. We um, see using this targeted panel which is CLIA approved and which um, ha- is uh, uh, entered, uh, the data are entered into the medical record uh, on average 21 days after receipt of um, a specimen. So it's done in um, a, clinic, a, a clinically relevant time frame. Uh, we see the same thing that was seen in big, uh, large, multi-center, um, international cancer genome and TCGA sequencing efforts that took months and years to complete. Ninety uh, percent of these patients have activating mutations in, in KRAS. We see mutations in p53, in in SMAD4, in p16. We also see um, mutations. I guess this is cut off. Um, uh, This is um, uh, ARID1A and and KDM6A, epigenetic regulators of the disease. And then uh, this 2.4% and 7% are in the breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, um, and another 4% in uh, ATM and and PALB2. So this is a a group of patients that becomes very uh, interesting to focus on. And when we look cumulatively um, at potentially actionable somatic mutations in pancreatic cancer, we see, interestingly, that a total of 52 percent have potentially actionable uh, mutations for which there are uh, available therapies. Unfortunately, most of these actual mutations are divided into very, very small subpopulations of patients, making it very difficult to um, design clinical trials to um, leverage these. Uh, likely susceptibilities. The one uh, big exception that I want to focus on today are these mutations in DNA damage repair genes. Again, in BRCA2, ATM, ATRX, BRCA1, and PALB2. Um, In other tumor types, um, uh, notably uh, breast and ovarian cancer, patients with mutations in DNA damage repair genes um, have tumors that are exquisitely sensitive to DNA-damaging agents, such as platinum-based chemotherapy and more newly developed PARP inhibitors. And it's really revolutionized uh, the treatment of uh, those, those tumor types. Um, and so this represents a really interesting potential therapeutic vulnerability um, that we hope is going to be imminently exploitable for pancreatic cancer patients. So um, more than 10% of patients have somatic mutations in these diseases, that is tumor-specific mutations, but what we've also uh, performed recently is uh, germline sequencing uh, at the time of this slide was made on over 200 patients. And we found that 26% of these patients, independent of family history, Had germ, apparently deleterious germline mutations, again, with another 10 to 20 percent having mutations in DNA damage repair genes, including uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2. So it may be that as many as a quarter of all patients with pancreatic cancer have mutations in DNA damage repair pathway genes that in theory might render their tumors exquisitely sensitive to um, uh, uh, DNA damaging agents, especially cisplatin and PARP um, inhibitors. The interesting thing here is that these patients were unselected by family history. And it means that at least in pancreatic cancer, family history does nothing to enrich for germline mutations. And this now represents our strongest argument to try and convince third-party payers to reimburse for routine genetic testing in pancreatic cancer, as is done in breast cancer, colon cancer, and other uh, common uh, tumor types. So um, we think that this represents a dramatic opportunity to apply um, biomarker-driven, molecularly-selected therapy to a large subset of patients with pancreatic cancer. And to uh, uh, test that hypothesis, Eileen O'Reilly, one of my prior colleagues at Sloan Kettering, uh, conducted a a multicenter international A phase one trial of uh, gemcitabine plus cisplatin and a PARP inhibitor, valiparib, in untreated patients with metastatic uh, pancreatic cancer. And um, this was, again, a multi-center trial that involved a number of sites in the U.S., um, and abroad. It involved uh, gemcitabine and cisplatin and dose escalation of, uh, of a valiparib, a PARP in, inhibitor. And um, this trial uh, witnessed a number of extremely dramatic responses. So, this is uh, pre treatment uh, CT scanning showing uh, a patient's liver studded with metastasis from pancreatic cancer. Tumor markers, including ca 199 9 and CEA, that were markedly elevated. And then post-treatment in this patient, a complete uh, and durable, uh, complete clinical response with normalization of tumor markers and the complete um, uh, disappearance of these liver lesions. And when um, these patients were looked at in terms of their molecular profile and stratified in blue here as positive for BRCA gene mutations here in their germline uh, versus um, wild type uh, with no BRCA mutations. This is a so-called water plot, waterfall plot where we look at uh, the best uh, uh, target lesion response um, uh, with um, uh, um, uh, 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 a loss in tumor volume of 30 percent, representing a partial response by resist criteria. We see in blue, the patients with mutations in uh, the breast cancer genes had dramatic responses, including 80, 90, 100 percent a reduction in in tumor uh, volume, and those uh, dramatic responses were completely limited to those patients who uh, had BRCA mutations, and were not observed in uh, patients uh, who did not have mutations in uh, the breast cancer genes. And this is the so-called swimmers uh, response, where, uh, swimmers plot, where we look. Um, uh, at months on treatment as a marker of response durability. And you can, again, see here that patients in blue who had uh, mutations in the breast cancer genes um, enjoyed very, very durable responses uh, out to two and three years uh, with one patient still now just on maintenance PARP inhibitor uh, out now close to four years with a complete uh, clinical response that proved remarkably durable. So this trial was limited to uh, patients uh, uh, with uh, Uh, The benefits in this trial were limited to patients with germline mutations in breast cancer genes. We're now uh, conducting a similar trial for those patients who have non-germline, somatic, tumor-specific mutations. And if similar results are seen, as many as a quarter of patients with pancreatic cancer uh, may enjoy uh, this, this type of response versus the more typical Uh, median survival of less than um, a a year. So um, this is a really exciting first example of biomarker-driven molecular uh, sequencing-based profiling of uh, patients' pancreatic tumors uh, driving uh, therapeutic decisions in a very uh, effective way. So I'm going to... um, and by uh, talking uh, uh, about how similar uh, sequence-based analysis of uh, pancreatic cancer has allowed us new insights into the immune landscape of this disease in a manner that we now hope will extend the benefits of immunotherapy. It's revolutionized the treatment of other tumor types uh, to our pancreatic cancer patients. And this is represented. This is... um, Uh, been the result of a really fun uh, multi-transdisciplinary collaboration. I think speaks to the power of this uh, approach. Uh, This was our team. It's led by Vinod Balachandran in my my lab uh, when I was at Sloan Kettering. Uh, Arnie Levine, a a noted tumor biologist who discovered P53. uh, Now at Princeton, Ben Greenbaum. a a computational biologist who, along with Marta Luxa, is at Mount Sinai, Kurt uh, Cowan, the former chair of physics at Princeton, now at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, uh, a truly multidisciplinary team that took a very um, computationally sophisticated approach to trying to understand the mutational neoepitope landscape in this disease. So most people are aware that T cells can recognize tumors, um, by identifying uh, tumor-specific neoantigens. And this is done in an MHC-restricted manner. And it's thought that uh, T-cells um, recognize both mutational neoepitopes on tumor cells, that is, uh, new antigens presented um, on the cell surface um, that are derived from um, uh, mu- uh, pro- proteins whose, whose encoding sequence has, un- has been altered by mutation. And then perhaps another uh, uh, 50% of T cell responses are driven by changes in gene expression that are unique to the tumor. I'm going to talk about mutational neoepitopes today. Uh, Traditionally, pancreatic cancer has been thought of as a relatively non-immunogenic disease. So this is a a graph with um, the number of mutations that are typically seen in a tumor. Uh, Prior large-scale sequencing efforts had suggested that pancreatic cancer uh, carries about 30 or so mutations on average, or about one mutation per megabase. And in this type of Uh, analysis where tumor types across the top are categorized as uh, tumors that occasionally, regularly, or frequently engage the immune system uh, pancreatic cancer was down here between uh, 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 occasionally and regularly, in contrast to the more uh, immunogenic tumor types, uh, melanoma, uh, lung cancer, etc., cetera, that uh, often are characterized by mutations in the hundreds and thousands uh, that frequently engage the immune system. Um, our uh, uh, sequencing effort, though, and some other more recent efforts that – Uh, enriched for tumor-specific mutations by doing laser capture microdissection uh, to enrich for tumor DNA before sequencing uh, suggests that um, there might be a much higher rate of mutations in pancreatic cancer, suggesting that pancreatic cancer may be Um, more capable of frequently engaging the immune system. And so um, the relationship, though, between neoantigens, T-cells, and survival in pancreatic cancer has to date uh, remained unknown. And so Vinod Balachandran, a very talented um, young investigator in my lab, Uh, wanted to ask a number of questions. Are there mutational epitopes in PDAC, in pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, pancreatic cancer? Are T-cells responding to these mutational neoepitopes in pancreatic cancer, and what is the association between these epitopes, T-cells, and survival? So he took a very ambitious approach in which he did multiplex immunohistochemistry to characterize the infiltrating immune cell populations in this disease. He did um, uh, uh, ultra-deep sequencing of T-cell receptors to understand the clonal structure of T-cells in this disease, RNA-seq and whole exome-seq in a unique series of long-versus-short-term pancreatic cancer survivors. So um, we um, posited that um, extraordinary pancreatic cancer survivors may be illuminating in terms of teaching us about how the immune system uh, was or was not able to engage uh, tumor neoepitopes in this disease. And so we uh, assembled an admittedly highly uh, selected uh, group of patients with pancreatic cancer. These were all patients that had surgically resected tumors. Uh, no metastatic tumors, and and had no neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And we uh, selected a group of extraordinary long-term survivors, 80 patients with a median survival of six years. And we compared them to a more typical group of patients with uh, short-term survival, in this case, less than a year. And uh, we applied the uh, previously listed analytic techniques. And the first thing we looked at it was highly uh, multiplex immunohistochemistry where on a single uh, tissue microarray, we could stain for a variety of immune markers, in- including um, uh, CD3 and CD8 markers of T-cells, granzyme B, one of the enzymes that T-cells use to kill their target cells as a marker of activated T-cells, myeloid markers, B-cell markers, etc. And um, what we found was that when we compare uh, short-term survivors in red to long-term survivors in blue, we found that the long-term survivors had uh, a slightly more dense infiltrate of regulatory T-cells, of dendritic cells, and of myeloid cells, but no difference in the density of um, infiltrating uh, T cells, um, and so this was striking to us. But when we looked a little more at, in a little more detail at um, at these T cells, we found that uh, CD eight positive T cells um, had a threefold higher density in the long-term versus the short-term survivors. And when we combine that with Granzyme B as a marker of uh, T cells uh, actively executing cell death in their target cells, if we looked at cytolytic CD8-positive T cells, we saw a 12-fold increase in long-term versus uh, short-term survivors. And, the sequencing of T-cell receptors revealed that in the long-term survivors, there were not only uh, more cytolytic T-cells, but the T-cells had a higher diversity. That is, they were more polyclonal and had um, uh, tumor-specific T-cell sequences not found in the adjacent uh, pancreas, suggesting that these long-term survivors were characterized by a polyclonal tumor-specific active T cell response. Um, We also did RNA-seq, and I'm not going to go over those data, and showed that the long-term survivors were characterized by a more immunogenic tumor microenvironment, in addition to this 12-fold increase in cytolytic T cells and a more polyclonal Tumor specific uh, T cell repertoire. So the the question is, what were these T cells responding to? And to clarify that, uh, we uh, selected tumors again with more than 70% cellularity to enrich for tumor uh, cell specific DNA. And we sequenced um, 30 short term survivors and 30 long term survivors, subjected them to deep 150x coverage whole exome sequencing identified mutations, and then did in silico uh, highly computational neoantigen uh, prediction. And what we found is, in contrast to uh, prior thinking, these tumors had a high rate of mutation, about two mutations per megabase, putting them up there in that category of tumor that more frequently engages the immune system. And when we computationally predicted which of these mutations generated effective T-cell neoepitopes, we found that a significant fraction of them uh, of them uh, did, raising the question whether um, a neoepitope quantity might predict outcome in this disease. When we looked at that, though, we found that wasn't the case, that when we compared short versus long-term survivors, we found no difference in the total number of non-synonymous mutations, the total number of missense mutations, or the number of predicted neoantigens, no difference between uh, short and long-term survivors. And that is further emphasized in these Kaplan-Meier plots, where we show that the neoantigen quantity divided as above and below the median as neoantigen high versus neoantigen low, no ability to predict survival. When we combined neoantigen number with the density of helper T-cells, no difference. But when we combine neoantigen quantity with the density of uh, infiltrating uh, T-cells, and especially infiltrating granzyme B-positive cytolytic T-cells, we saw that there was a big difference between short and long-term survivors. So it's only when you take neoantigen quantity and you match it, pair it with the T-cell response, that you're able to predict survival in this disease. And so the question is, why weren't all of these T-cell neoepitopes able to engage the immune system? And uh, we were aware at this time that both in in tumor immunology, in in melanoma, in autoimmune disease, in Sjogren's disease, in multiple sclerosis, and in viral uh, infections, including uh, HIV, and this is Epstein-Barr virus, that homology to to epitopes presented by other microbial pathogens was frequently predictive of an ability to engage the immune system. So we wondered if total neoepitope quantity wasn't predictive of an ability to engage the immune system, would a unique aspect of neoepitope quality, namely homology to microbial pathogens, um, be um, discriminative in terms of predicting survival? And so... We, again, went through an an effort that involved complex computational modeling where we basically um, uh, developed a neoantigen quantity model and compared it to a neoantigen um, uh, quality model. In the quantity model, every time you get more mutations, every time you get more neoantigens, you get more immunogenic. Whereas in the neoantigen quality model, um, it's not quantity, but rather it's um, immunogenicity as determined by an immunodominant neoantigen that has maximal uh, homology to microbial uh, pathogen uh, antigens. And again, we modeled this in a fairly complex way, that looked at uh, homology to microbial pathogens. It looked at the ability to engage T cell receptors uh, bind to MHC class one. Uh, and for each patient, we took the clonal architecture of the tumor into consideration uh, and took a weighted antigens of a weighted average of neoantigen cross reactivity scores according to the relevant size of each tumor subclone uh, that, that uh, bore that neoantigen. And what we found is, again, that neoantigen quantity, while it has no ability to predict survival, Neoantigen quality defined largely by homology to antigens presented by infectious microbial pathogens is highly predictive of survival in this disease. And that's true in our highly selected Memorial Sloan Kettering data set as well as a completely unselected uh, group of patients that were sequenced by the International Cancer Genome Consortium, with here a threefold increase in median survival from 14 months to more than 30 months in uh, patients whose tumors had mutations that bore homology to Uh, uh, antigens expressed by infectious uh, pathogens. And when we look at the list of pathogens uh, to which these mutations bore homology, it's a fairly exotic list of organisms that includes yellow fever and um, malaria and dengue virus. So this is a a set of pathogens to which a a population of patients on the upper East side of Manhattan has not been exposed. So we don't think this is pre existing exposure, but we think um, that this represents an evolutionary bias in uh, the human T-cell repertoire that evolved under conditions not to prevent or cure cancer, but to protect patients from infection. Um, So we're really excited about these findings, and we think that this now uh, is going to form the basis for, again, uh, sequencing-based strategies for individual peptide vaccines, as well as selection of which patients with pancreatic cancer um, uh, ought best be treated using immunotherapy. So, um, just to summarize, these are the things we went over uh, today, and I hope i 've convinced you that for pancreatic cancer, as in other tumor types, sequence matters and i 'm already really ex- exciting about the very sophisticated molecular profiling efforts that are being undertaken for uh, cancer patients here at Norris Cotton, and um, look forward to further to further extending and developing those and to create arguments in terms of legislative advocacy and advocacy with third party payers on why, uh, amongst other tumor types, pancreatic cancer um, ought, pancreatic cancer patients ought to have this type of profiling uh, routinely uh, reimbursed. So with that, I'll end and uh, acknowledge uh, the funding that uh, uh, we're largely bringing here from uh, NIH and uh, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, uh, the Lusgarten Foundation and AACR, and again, express just what an honor and, and joy it is to be joining this wonderful community riding in the Prouty was uh, incredibly inspiring uh, to me um, not only to ride in the the, 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 the Prouty up on uh, route 10 but the walking Prouty on on one West and um, and to see uh, just how much this community is uh, takes care of uh, uh, each other and, and and takes care of our great institutions and, and takes care of our patients was very inspiring to me. So thank you again for coming.
1: So thank you for getting off to such a great start in your tenure here and um, and for leaving us a little time for questions. Would anybody like to start?
0: just oh, amazing. Yeah. Very exciting things about all sorts of collaborations. Uh, do you have an animal model that would be so? It's, a lot of this sounds like tumor microenvironment. Sure. And do you have a, a good animal model? Yeah, we do. We 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 have a very um, robust um, mouse model of pancreatic cancer in which we have we've genetically engineered in all the relevant alleles. It um, recapitulates those sequences of progression through precursor lesions. It recapitulates a very robust stromal response and an immunosuppressive uh, tumor microenvironment. Unfortunately, it doesn't accurately reflect the heterogeneity of tumor types that we see clinically, and so. In in a way, it's kind of like studying N equals 1. Nevertheless, it has been extremely informative. One of the efforts that my lab has invested heavily in is the extension of patient-derived models in order to appreciate that heterogeneity. So we've created a panel now of over 100 uh, patient-derived 3D tumor organoids in which we can uh, better appreciate the molecular heterogeneity of this disease and then we're eagerly awaiting, and we've um, we've done some dabbling in, you know, the ability to uh, xenograft tumors into mice with uh, humanized patient-specific immune systems um, in order to uh, kind of fully. Uh, Uh, reflect the heterogeneity of the human disease in the context of an intact immune system. And those are, uh, I think, going to be really important advances. That's fantastic. We need to talk. Thanks. Yes, Craig? Excellent
1: talk. Uh, I was wondering if you looked at the lifestyle or or diets of these long-term survivors. In other words, it would be nice to encourage some of these pathogenic uh, microbiota rather than just by chance.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, it's fascinating. We, we, we haven't been able, been able to do this. Unfortunately, even um, most of these long-term survivors that had a median survival of more than six years still succumb to pancreatic cancer eventually, so we haven't been able to delve into those issues. And it's an obvious fascinating question You know whether um, this reflects influences of the microbiome. Most of the pathogens to which the mutations in the long-term survivors showed homology were viral pathogens. And it's a lot harder to study the viral microbiome than it is the bacterial microbiome. But these are, you know, fascinating questions, both clinically and biologically.
1: I'm sure your mouth.
0: Sure, no, that, that would be fascinating. We have yeah. a
1: couple of questions over here. Yes. So uh, you've made a compelling argument, not for mouse models, but for uh, biorepositories sure. for substance analysis. But the other, as an outgrowth of that, was that the, maybe your microbiome, your T cell repertoire to the microbiota has influenced uh, your outcomes in pancreatic cancer. But the other component of that is HLS. HLA haplotypes right.
0: shape the T cell repetitive sure. have also evolved to protect you. So my question is in your long term
1: versus short term responders, you must have done this. what were the HLA haplotypes and were there any particular ones that were predicted?
0: Yeah, no, that's it great. We th- this was all done in uh an, you know HLA you know um, restrict restricted analysis and um the, we saw no gross disparity from known distributions of HLA haplotypes um, in a Caucasian vest um, uh, compared to what you'd expect in a largely Caucasian you know population so nothing nothing jumped out there we um, we only did class class one and whether something else might show up in terms of MHC class 2 um, you know types I'm not I'm not sure but um, we would love to know more about about that. There have been a couple larger-scale epidemiologic studies that haven't suggested any dramatic biases there. In terms of the definition of tumor-specific
1: T cells, that's
0: based on the fact that they're in the tumor? It's based on TCRV beta you know, T, T cell receptor sequencing of tumor and matched adjacent normal. And 95% of the TCR sequences in the tumor were not present in adjacent normal in either the long or the short-term survivors.
1: So did the heterogeneity of neoantigen with respect to the um, micro, uh, the, the, the homology of yes. uh, viral and
0: uh, bacterial uh, uh, antigens did- change the likelihood of survival? Um, is it, I, I guess we can't say in a causal way, but cer- certainly in, in, a, in an associative way. There was a clear, clear association between um, you know, homology to viral and microbial pathogens. And these are antigens that are listed in something called the Immune Epitope Database, which tries to catalog every you know, um, neoepitope for which there's a known human T cell response, and again, we don't think it's prior exposure. I think another element of this is that in this database, you have a known reactive T cell clone. So um, to do that, you have you have to have been you know identified as non-self to have a T cell clone that's avo- avoided thymic clonal deletion. So homology to these antigens might also reflect uh, uh, an increased chance of being non-self and therefore having viable T-cell clones within the human TCR repertoire that have survived thymic deletion. Given the lateness of the hour, I'm sorry to
1: share, <laughs> but I know there are still a few hands up and
0: um, to be fair to everyone, perhaps we could invite them to come up and sure. talk with you yeah. at the end. Yeah. So. Thanks again.